Okay. So it, it's a family of four girls. Yes. So now, does that make you a rahadi or not? Are you a rahadi? Not a rahadi. Uh, no, I'm like an aunt, yes. Oh, okay. So Mama, yeah, and yes, yes. So you don't uh, have rahadi tendencies. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> okay. I did not see that coming. No, I do not have Rahadi tendencies. Okay. But when Rahadi knows, she knows. Welcome to Ujama Speaks, a podcast by Ujama Author, where we have conversations about orthopedic wellness. On this show, we'll delve deeper into the musculoskeletal condition, the importance of physical activity or movement as we call it, nutrition and the psychosocial aspects of well-being. The aim of this podcast is to empower all of us to take better care of our minds and bodies so we can live full lives. In episode one of Ujama Speaks, we're joined by Professor Sitombo Makungo, head of the Orthopedic Trauma Service at the University of Cape Town, and together with him, we explore a woman's journey in orthopedic surgery through the lens of Dr. Cynthia Sater. Join us as we get to know and celebrate the hand surgeon, Dr. Cynthia Sater. Sit back, relax, and I hope um, you all enjoy this. Um, thanks, um, thanks, Watile, for the introduction, and uh, good evening, everybody. Um, so. Um, like what Ile has alluded to, so tonight, you know, is about uh, celebrating excellence. Uh, it's just even nicer that that excellence is black, and it's even more wonderful that that excellence is a black woman. Um, seeing that um, we've just come out of um, out of Women's Month, but we'll take some liberties and um, and extend um, Women's Month up to up to tonight. So we've got uh, Cynthia Satecha. So my job tonight is going to be um, uh, just facilitating the discussion and basically interviewing her, and um, and then for everyone else uh, that's um, that, that, that's uh, tuned in, and like what Tina said, feel free to you know to write your questions on the chat, and then we'll address some of them as we go along, and then some will leave for the discussion at the end. So without further ado, Cynthia, hello. Hello, Sitongwa. How are I you? I haven't seen you in ages. I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. Actually, the last time I saw you, um, I had prepared a nice lekker braai for you, only to find yes. out that you were, you, were, you were vegetarian. A few months so, ago. <laughs> yes. So are you still vegetarian? <laughs> um, I'm a flexitarian now because I oh. had your meat. I had that oh. meat, did I not? Also, so I won. Okay, fantastic. I, I had your meat, so after that, then I realized sometimes I should allow myself to have meat. There's always no space for brisket. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, Cynthia, so how are we going to structure the discussion tonight? So I'm um, actually almost like a real academic paper, seeing that you are a celebrated um, academic. Actually, I mean, there's so many you know, superlatives that describe you, you know, excellent academic. Um, award-winning clinician, uh, trailblazer, you know, I mean, we'll go through all these things. So I'm going to ask you uh, initially just a few questions about what you do at the moment, um, and then we'll go a little bit back to just who you are, where you grew up, you know, your family life, 
and then um, for for the main course, well, just your journey, you know, um, into orthopedics and um, the challenges and opportunities along the way, and then we'll sort of also just briefly discuss, you know, any advice you may have, you know, for people who are about to embark on this journey, and also maybe even some of the things that you've learned along the way that you wish, you know, you had known before you started. So. Yeah, without further ado, uh, so just tell us a little bit about who you are, you know, where you're from. Oh, no, no, sorry, no, before that, no, 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 before that, it's just your current practice, sorry. Okay. Um, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome. Uh, thank you very much to Ujama uh, Sitombo. Thank you for doing this. I'm proud of Ujama as a company um, for um, trailblazing, doing things that are a little bit different from other companies that are out there. So who I am or what I do at the moment, Cynthia Satera, the orthopedic surgeon, orthopedic hand surgeon. I actually at some point stopped calling myself orthopedic surgeon, um, you know, because sometimes I tease orthopods with what they do. So I call myself a hand, just purely a hand surgeon. I used to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I'm currently in um, private practice full time. Um, I had just left um, Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital, uh, where I was working in the hand unit as one of the consultants. Um, so now I'm full-time uh, private, and I will do some part-time uh, public service work. And which hospital do you practice at? I am at Busa Med, the Modderfontein branch, which is in Midrand, um, in Johannesburg. So it's uh, Busa Med Modderfontein Private Hospital. All right, fantastic. So, of course, you no. Know, before you were a doctor, you know, you were, and you still are, of course, somebody's child, and um, some, you know, you are a an aunt to someone, family member. Just tell us a little bit now about uh, just your family background. So, I am one of four children. I was born to um, wonderful uh, parents, um, the most beautiful queen, my mother. So I was born uh, when she was actually 19. I was born in a place called Senwabarwana, which used to be called Bochum, and that is in um, uh, Limpopo. So I'm a Limpopo person. Um, I know you guys tease Limpopoans quite a lot, even what Dile does. But um, the positive thing is I belong to what they call a 5K or a 10K group, meaning you know, kids that walk 5Ks or, or 10 kilometers to school, there's nothing you can do to those kids. They can overcome almost anything in life. So I was uh, born in Limpopo and I went to a primary school and I started high school in Limpopo. I only came to Johannesburg when I was in high school, uh, when we started um, being integrated into the previously white schools, the Model Cs. So then I started high school in Littleton, um, and after that, then I went to medical school in um, um, UCT. Okay, now that's so just I, to, uh, I'll, I'll keep it a little bit. Uh, there's no. one four, four girls, so I'm the firstborn. Um, so, you know, your parents experiment a lot with the first one. They never know what they're doing. So by the time they got to the fourth, they're perfect parents. Um, so my sisters, I have um, three sisters. Second one is uh, Motalepula or Edna, 
beautiful mother of four, uh, married to a wonderful husband. Um, so I'm a mother of four as well because I look almost exactly like her. So her kids always think I'm their mother. Um, and then the third one is uh, Machela um, or Bridget, and she's currently living in London. Uh, she studied an MBA um, at LBS, London School of Business. Um, so she decided to, to stay on and work in London. And then the last one um, is Selaelo, which means the last one, um, um, Eileen. Um, and she's with us here at Midrand. Um, and um, yeah, she's a lovely, wonderful person, uh, but still acts like a last born. Okay. So it's a family of four girls. Yes. So now, does that make you a Rahadi or not? Are you a Rahadi? Not a Rahadi. Uh, no, I'm like an aunt, yes. Oh, okay. So, Mama, yeah, and yes, yes. So, you don't uh, have Rahadi tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. No, I do not have Rahadi tendencies. Okay. But when Rahadi knows, she knows. By the way, there are Rakhadis in the Eastern Cape as well. Uh, for yes. those of us who are joined, you, I'm sure they don't know that Sitombo uh, is from the Eastern Cape. But no, there are Rakhadis in the Eastern Cape as well. Have, they aren't exclusive to The difference is that the they don't have Rakhadi <laughs> tendencies, you know. So Cynthia, so you're saying that there's hope then for teenage pregnancies because, you know, when you listen to people talk about teenage pregnancies, it, like, it always sounds like the worst thing that can happen. And here you are, a product of teenage pregnancy. That's yeah. fantastic. Okay, so you did your high school in, in Joburg, and then now the journey through medical school, you went to UCT. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you first decide that you were going to specialize? And then after that, when did you decide it was going to be orthopedics, or was it always going to be orthopedics from the day you chose to specialize? No, um, I actually decided to specialize when I was, I think, fourth year or fifth year. When you started, you joined as a registrar at that time. Um, and Professor Mayosi had also just come back from Oxford. So then I realized that, oh, as a, as a, a, a black person, I don't, I don't just have to be a general practi practitioner. I can actually specialize. Um, so then going through the rotations, um, I, when I joined you guys for the two weeks rotation, I think it's in fifth year, I then felt so at home with orthopedics because you follow a registrar. It's just you and a registrar on call. So when they go to the emergency department, when they have to go to theater, you go with them. So I actually had a beautiful shadowing, what I would call it a shadowing um, in orthopedics. And I realized that I actually love it. Um, I absolutely love it. So for me at the beginning, I thought it's because I'm a practical person that's uh, um, like solving problems. So if there's a problem, you just solve it and you see the immediate results. Uh, but I also noticed that it's the tools that they work with. And I grew up with a lot of uh, male cousins um, and uh, my dad being a mechanic, my grandfather also being able to fix cars. I was always around the same tools that you use in orthopedics. Um, so I then realized I feel very much at home. But my grandmother later on um, told me that maybe the reason why I became an, or I wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon was when I was five, I actually had a knee injury. And she's an orthopedics um, scrub nurse. So she took care of me. Um, she worked in Polokwane Hospital. So she felt that it's, you know, it wasn't just a conscious decision. It was also a subconscious decision um, where I actually felt very much at home with um, orthopedics. 
So that's where it actually uh, began and then the, the reason behind it. And I think I believe her more because I don't know where it came from. I just, I was very much at home uh, with orthopedics, very much. Okay. So, and then of course, after medical school, then um, it was internship. Um, where did you do that? And then maybe just now, having made up your mind in, um, in fifth year that you wanted to pursue a career in orthopedics, did you now specifically look out for orthopedic opportunities in your internship in the comm service and maybe just like take us through what you then did you know internship right up to when you could then leave and go specialize in like just so internship and the mo years okay so once i decided in fifth day that i want to do this i then um came to the orthopedic department uh, whilst preparing for finals exams. I think it was sixth year when everybody was worried, or, you know, are we going to qualify? We're writing exams. I was already thinking two, three years ahead saying, how do I prepare myself for uh, coming into a program? So then I had a meeting where I asked them, what are the requirements? What do I need to do in the next three years to make sure that I can join um, a program? It doesn't have to be the Cape Town program, but any program. So then they um, told me, you know, you just need uh, to go to a place where um, you can write your primaries early um, and then a place where you can write your intermediates, your, uh, sort of your, your district hospitals. So I went to Leradon, so I had already unfortunately chosen um, a hospital I was going to work at and I wanted to be closer to home. So I went to Leradon. In Leradon, I approached Dr. Anim, who was the HOD for um, orthopedics at the time. And as interns, we didn't really rotate through orthopedics. I think it's only now that when they do two-year internship where people rotate um, in, in subspecialties. But I did go to him and I let him know that I am interested and what is it that I can do to prepare. So um, one thing I knew was to go onto this journey. The sooner you can take off um, some of the things, the better. So I chose Sebuking for ComServe for two reasons. I'd heard about two guys that are very, very good as teammates. Uh, Professor Goto, um, who was Dr. Goto at the time. So he's a general surgeon and he's now in SMU, uh, but he was at Sebuking at the time. So I knew that he was accredited because you can rotate with him. He does a lot of trauma in ICU. So once I can rotate with him and he does tutorials where he prepares you for your intermediates. So that was number one. Number two, it was Professor Ramkopa. I'd heard that he's there and he's doing orthopedics and he's very keen um, to get people to do orthopedics. Um, so then I decided to go to Sebukeng. Unfortunately, by the time I went to Sebukeng, Ramkopa had then moved on to Johannesburg Jen, uh, Jen, which is now Charlotte Matlaike, um, to be the head of trauma. But then I was left with uh, uh, Professor Godo, um, which was great because then my um, comserv. I then prepared to write my primaries um, under his guidance. Um, and then after that, I did six months of um, uh, medical officer time where he took us through tutorials to then prepare for the intermediates. Um, yes. So, so then when I was there for the six months of uh, MO time, I then applied to um, Jobet Jen um, and asked Professor Lukele, if I can come and become a medical officer because I'm interested in doing orthopedics. Um, in June, I think June or May or June, um, he then called me and said, listen, are you very serious about this um, orthopedics? Because I've got a slot for you. You're starting in July. So then I left again to do medical officer time. Um, and because I had already prepared to write my intermediates, 
um, and I had done my rotations, I was actually able to uh, then do my intermediates. And then I started my uh, register time in 2008. So literally I did only one year of MO time. So uh, um, just to, to clarify there, um, so you did your intermediates as a medical officer and then you, you got onto your rotation after you had the intermediate. Yes. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think, um, I'm not sure how many... Sorry, to correct you, I wrote the first time as a medical officer and I didn't make it. So I, I, I then got the registrar post and then I, read, I was already writing again. So by the time then they took me for a register post, then I was writing again and then I passed. Yeah, look, so I think um, for... For the people listening, um, especially the, the medical officers who are pre, you know, registrar years and, and are looking to, you know, to join as registrars, you know, I can only speak for Cape Town, but I'm sure it, it's it's similar everywhere else that the competition to get into the training program, you know, is quite intense, and uh, you know, so the only way that you can set yourself apart from the other candidates is definitely to do your primary as a medical officer, even like in your internship or come service, there's no reason to wait. I mean, I'm prepared to give people the internship year off, you know, to just go there and have fun. For, but it's definitely for the second year in internship, you must look at writing your, look at writing your, your primary. And then if you can, also as an MO, have in mind that you want to do orthopedics or to specialize in a surgical specialty and try and get your ICU time in your MO year. And then if you can, then do your, um, do your intermediate before the RED program, it will stand you in good stead. You don't have to do it like for all the institutions, but definitely it's something that you must have in mind. And like I said, the competition is becoming stronger and stronger now, you know, for, for registrar positions. And also I think the other you know, advantage with coming in with your intermediate is that, you know, you come into your RED program and it's a four-year program and uh, you've only got one exam to worry about. You know, whereas if you come in and uh, you have you know, the intermediate and the final to worry about, it's, you know, it's a little bit daunting. Yes, of course, it's doable, but you know, your life is much easier if you can have your intermediate uh, before, before your, your, your RED program. Uh, what did you, you had a question. Yes. Um, actually, I worked at Civil King as well, and I know what it's like um, in the foundation of your sort of career, where, you, where you're starting to lay this foundation, um, you're heading into orthopedic surgery. I'm wearing my Ujama hat here as a, an orthopedic trauma implant company, someone who is a partner, I believe, in your, in your growth. What is it that we can do as Ujama and any other uh, company in the, in the sector, really, to support um, interns, medical officers, the people right at the foundation of um, their orthopedic career. Because we believe that um, if they're really, um, if you're a good surgeon and the implant, is, it's, it's always secondary, you know. So our focus would like to sort of encourage and to, to spend a lot of our um, resources in developing the younger surgeons. So what is it that we can do to, to help support people who are, who are currently where you were at Sibu Kane um, those years ago. Do you, um, I think maybe um, Sitombo maybe can comment on that as someone who's active in the program of getting um, registrars. 
Yeah, look, I, I, I mean, so I, I, if you look at, um, at the training that's available, you know, for medical officers, it's, it's very limited. I mean, there is the, the, prima, the AO basic course, which is, um, provi which is provided by the AO Foundation. And then there is the, the Smith & Nephew Kwamaritane, um, which is actually meant for like at register level, but of course they do have uh, some supports for medical officers. So I, I think for me, what a company can do is, you know, there is definitely a, a gap in the education market, if you can call it that, at MO level. Because firstly, you know, the queue to get into the AO basic course is quite no, long, so it's very difficult to get into. So once you've done the basic course, there's actually nothing else available for a medical officer up until you become a registrar, and then now the courses are organized by, by your university. So I think as a company, the people that I think need the most support are the people who are sort of, you know, uh, in sort of, career, I wouldn't call it limbo, but you know, you know, it's a res just yet, but you've done your basic, uh, AO basic course. So for those people, there's nothing available, you know, so I think the greatest support you can give is to those guys, because also most of them work in peripheral hospitals, you know, like out in the Eastern Cape somewhere, KZN, they're not in the training circuit. So because again, most of the ad hoc, you know, meetings tend to be concentrated in the in the big cities and it's no accident because the companies we work with are owned by people who live in the big cities so it's easy to look around you only and service that market and the guys in the periphery get forgotten and um, also again if you look at the people that get invited to meetings you know now the reality you know is that you know the companies that we have are mostly white owned and uh, the relationships they have and the and you know, invitations often mirror friendships. So they will invite people they're friends with or friendly with or friendly to. So again, most people, you know, tend to lose out because of that. So I think if you could focus at the pre-registrar medical officer, even, in fact, let me say pre-registrar medical officer, plus the career MO, because remember, not every MO wants to specialize. There are people who will happily stay as career MOs, in some hospital in the free state or in in, in Uppington. And those guys need support too. So it, it mustn't be that we see value in people that will be specialists one day. And I mean, speaking for surgery in general, in this country, most of the surgery is performed by medical officers, not by registrars and not by specialists. So the, basically the, the, the machinery moves mostly at medical officer level and that's the generation or the group that gets the least amount of support. Agreed, I mean, that's fine. What did you want to answer to that? I just wanted to add something. Yes, I wanted to say we value everyone from, as I said, right, from internship all the way to professorship, I guess. So as a company, we value everyone along, the, along their, their growth, really. So that's very positive feedback, very uh, informative knowing that, you know, um, medical officers are sort of the missing middle. Um, and even in our experience in what you term the peripheral um, hospital, um, that is where the support is most needed, not necessarily in uh, the big centers in Western Cape or Kauke, but probably where uh, Dr. Fatehas from in Limpopo somewhere. 
<laughs> that's where we that's where we're focused. Yes. And, and and I, I was going to say before I take your I'll take your response now, but I just see there's a comment here from Mwaba Mazwana who says uh, I'm in the periphery and struggling, but I'm preparing to write. So now, luckily, you know, Mwaba, uh, the beauty now is that you know there's so much support that you can now you know access remotely. You know, you don't have to you know travel to a big city you know to get the support you need. Um, certainly, in my department, we are you know, sort of preparing to send all our teaching so the tuesday night teaching the you know friday teaching we'll put that on zoom and make it available for everyone in the country so we've got teaching for medical officers who are in our circuit and we've got teaching for registrars and uh, i mean the invites do go out but they go out traditionally to hospitals that have been affiliated to us and they go out across the continent and as far as the as india actually so i'm going to make that available now for everyone else who wants to join in and I'm going to put it, I'll give it to what and then you can um, share it widely or mm. And I just wanted to add that um, what you guys can help as a company to support some of the consultants who are actually starting courses. Like in orthopedics, we realize that those who are preparing for intermediates, remember now we've got orthopedic um, intermediates and then they're separated now from the general surgery. So, and when you go for the general surgery ones, you have to do a basic surgical skills course. So we've actually, um, Professor Aiden started a basic orthopedic surgical skills course because the, the surgical one went more towards, you know, training for general surgery. So now for orthopedics that left out a lot of medical officers or comserves that are actually interested. So we actually have one coming up the 1st of October. Um, I'll also give the details to Wadile. Um, so I'm co-chair for that um, course. And that's actually a free course open to everyone. And now with COVID, everything being on Zoom, everybody can um, um, tune in, actually. You don't have to drive to Verse University for the course. So that is very helpful for the guys who are in the periphery as well. Okay, thanks, Cynthia. Mari, so moving along. So now you are preparing to become a, a registrar. Now, registrar years are tough. I mean, everyone will tell you that. And registrar years are tougher if, you, if you're black. And registrar years, now I don't know, I've never been a woman, but I would imagine that looking at how the world works, that as a black woman, registrar years have got unique and particular challenges. Of course, look, we are you know, celebrating your excellence here tonight, so there will be happy parts to the conversation. But of course, you know, some bits, you know, we need to be realistic and discuss the not so happy bits just so people can get a, a complete picture. So let's take us through now the unique challenges that, uh, that you felt you, you were faced with in your, in your register years. So this is a question that uh, Nokwanda Ngoya asked as well. So here you are, you are a, like a small city girl working, coming into a big <laughs> hospital in Johannesburg and you're a woman and you're black. It's like all the odds stacked nicely in your favor. But the nice thing is as a 10K, 10K person, um, going in, I knew that it is a very male-dominated field, right? I knew that. I knew that. If you're going to play with the boys, you can't cry when you get scratched in the same pit, right? And luckily, when I started, even Professor Lukele called me aside because um, I started with uh, another girl. We're actually the first 
black females from vets to qualify as orthopedic surgeons in 2012. So he said to me, um, I don't ever want you to come to me crying, saying that um, you are being discriminated against or you're not getting what you want because you're female or you're black. And I said, you never have to worry about that because we're on the same page. I don't use my femininity or my skin color. For me, going into orthopedics, I said I am an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a doctor first. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not female first or black first, and then I'm orthopedics. So once I had that intention in my mind, a lot of the issues that some of the uh, females had complained about, I did not really have much of an issue because it's like going into jail the first day. It's either you are going to have a level of respect, let people know that this is not the one to mess with, or you're going to then be flown around. And so I, from the beginning, the way I dressed, the way I articulated, the way I carried myself was I'm here just like you to learn orthopedics and please see my mind and see my work. Do not see anything else. So, so, that so is when, you, yeah. Yeah? when you say the way you dressed, did you, because often what I, certainly what I see from our trainees and certainly the speech I give them is that, you know, you're not here to be one of the guys, you know, and importantly, you're not here, or rather, you don't need to feel the need to compensate because when people compensate, then they tend to just then overcompensate or become very defensive or, you know, become who they are not. And I always say to them, you know, it's a very long five years to be somebody that you're not. So please be yourself. If you want to wear makeup, wear makeup. If, if you want to wear black shoes or pink shoes, wear black shoes or pink shoes. So, I'm sort of happy you emphasize the bit about, you know, I'm here as myself, not as a female in orthopedics. And, you know. and, and the dressing, what I meant by that was you have to be practical. You know, in orthopedics, you actually have to be reducing femurs and all of that, and you're doing long ward rounds. So fine, if you want to wear your stilettos, your high heels, it's okay. Um, if you want to wear your mini skirt, it's okay. But you must just understand that the energy you bring or what you, how you present yourself you must know that you're also buying the response. So I think for women, it's very important. I'm not, I'm not judging anyone and I'm not saying people should dress a certain way, but you must be cognizant that if you're going to be bending over, seeing a patient, and then your thong is showing, you're wearing a miniskirt, that is not practical. And I, I, I have seen some MOs or registrars that actually dress a certain way that exposes them unnecessarily, right? So I'm, I'm not saying you must dress to look like a boy, but you must dress practical. You're an orthopedic. You want to be running around. I wore my pink shoes uh, for theater. I wore my nice colorful scrubs whenever I needed to wear them. Uh, but for practicalities, I wore, you know, pants. If I wore a skirt, I wore a skirt that even if I bent over, uh, you know, I'm not going to be giving people heart attacks. Because at the time, there were so few females and you have to be, socially aware i'm not saying people should change who they are to accommodate men but you must understand the reality you are in and i'm not saying you should bend but you should understand that whatever you do there's cause and effect so choose the effect so i always say how do i want to end so therefore it, it informs how i will start something so I dress a certain way that you don't look at me and whistling and my, my you know, I'm showing my boobs and stuff. You actually just saw me as your colleague, not as a boy, but as your colleague who happens to be female. Yeah. All right. So look, uh, no, of course, here, it's one thing what you see yourself as. But I mean, let's face the reality that community will still see you as a female. And I'm sure that you are exposed now to that dynamic a lot yeah. of the times. 
So how then do you deal with being called a nurse or unless you're promoted because I get called a porter, at least you know you are a nurse. So how do you then deal with the society that still has biases? Some of course very conscious and some very unconscious. And also not even society like on the bigger scale, even within orthopedics there are you know, biases with, you know, in the workplace, uh, you, know, the, you know, the treatment you get from anesthetics or from other departments. So were there any specific dynamics there that were out of your control? Yes, the, the nurse one, um, it's, it was mostly from patients. And I mean, you can correct a patient. You don't have to get angry. Um, so I would just correct them. They'll say, oh, no, we've been here the whole day. A doctor has never come. Um, you know, that's one of the things that maybe they started saying at the beginning, even as before I started doing uh, reg time. So then you just correct them. And when you come into a ward, you introduce yourself and then you say, I'm Dr. So-and-so, then you see your patients. Um, those that will want to take it, take it. Those that don't, you can correct. But those that obviously have some male chauvinism, you know, they don't really matter in my life. So I just move on. The one that I really had to be very careful with was the anesthesiologist. So especially at the beginning, they'll be like, oh, so you, you know, where's your um, registrar? And I'm like, I'm the registrar. I'm, I'm here to do the surgery. Um, so I just had to really woosa, relax and say, I'm here to work. And it will take a long time, but I'm just here to work. And then once people start seeing your work ethic, how you are with the team, um, so I realized that sometimes, again, you have to own the energy you bring. So when I come into theater, I book, I introduce myself, I respect you and, and whatever. So I make sure that from my side, I do all I can to make sure that we have a positive interaction. But for those that actually like some uh, white males, um, one that stands out was I had to do like an ankle case. And I think it was like three o'clock already. Um, and before I even started, he, had to, he went to my um, uh, superior and said, oh, no, I think you need to do this case. And thank God my superior was a guy who knew me and knew my work. So when he came in, he said, but why are you calling me? This chick is very much capable. She's going to finish before um, 4 o'clock or just after 4 o'clock. You're not going to be here until... So that was actually, I was fortunate, but that was the one where it really irritated me so much that I actually afterwards went to him and I said, look, that was actually unacceptable. Even though he didn't take it and he said, look, I don't feel like I need to explain myself. I said, I know, but I need to tell you that you were out of order. So you have to stand up to bullies, even though it's not about winning, but you actually have to stand up to bullies. So I actually stood up for myself and I said, that was uncalled for. You could have just come to speak to me, what your concerns are. And I would have told you, I will not take long. But why then go above me and go to someone else? But yeah, but the rest of it, I think um, one is being in such a male-dominated um, field. In the tea room, they had like pictures of half-naked half women. In, in, and I think they thought it was funny. Uh, but for me, it was uncomfortable. You mention it once or twice. Um, and then after that, if people don't take it seriously, then you realize that, listen, people are just trying to play mind games with you then you must go eat somewhere else because you have addressed it as, you know, uh, positively, as respectfully as you can. But if people then don't respond to that and, and become socially aware that they make you uncomfortable, the same as someone who would talk about golf while you're talking to a black person who grew up in Limpopo who does not play golf. And then you just continue conversing about, oh, golf, when I was in Europe. And so people must just be socially aware. And if they're not, you can choose to then let them know that, look, that's actually inappropriate to have those pictures there. Um, so could you please take them down? And if they feel they shouldn't do it, then then that means that you must do something. So then I would eat somewhere else or I would go and work somewhere else and eat my lunch whenever I can eat my lunch. 
So okay. So now I'm mean, just picking up on on, on the part where you know you said you've learned or you learned quite early to stand up for yourself and you know fight for your space. The thing is, you know, the prejudices we face uh, are not always directed at us only. You know, sometimes they're going to be directed at someone who is not in your team, but you can see that they're being treated um, not in a specific kind of way that you, you don't agree with. And uh, I think it was Madeleine Albright um, when she said that um, as, a, you know, as a woman, you know, there's, a, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women in the workplace. So do you feel that added responsibility as a woman to look out for ill treatment of other women in your workplace? Yes, and in fact, I did stand up for a few women. I don't know if some of them are here. Um, two occasions where I would see um, the male counterparts treating a, a, a female registrar, you know, someone who's superior to them, treating them in such a way that is unbecoming socially, you know, touching them a lot, grabbing them in front of patients, acting like now we're in a Shabin somewhere. And I actually went to both of them and I said, but look, this is, what, what are you guys doing? We're in front of patients and you guys are acting like we're in a Shabin. And those are, that's one of the things I had to be really socially cognizant of because sometimes when you're in a male field, if, if men can see that you really are brilliant, they have to compete with you. The, one of the first things they start doing is subdue you via um, sexual, sexual behavior. So I was very aware of that at the beginning, that I should not let anybody think that they, they can subdue me like that. So when I, when I see it happening, I, one actually agreed and then they, you know, they then started treating them properly. But then one, the, the female herself, said that, look, I mean, what am I doing? You know, life happens and people need to flirt and whatever. And then I said, okay, well, then that's your decision. But you should know that you should not allow guys, uh, because you're brilliant, you should not allow them to then lower you by doing this to you, right? But then that's all you can do. You can protect people like that. So then I, I, I sometimes then have to say, I speak to the um, females, the medical officers, or the registrars, or even the interns, because I, I used to be an intern coordinator. I will tell them from the word go, if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, let me know immediately because we need to nip it in the butt. And a few, one or two times, a registrar did that. And, you know, I had to actually take him um, to the book and took him to the professor and said, this is un an unacceptable for my interns because they're really powerless. Uh, for this guy to do this, for them to feel so uncomfortable. So I have done that. Um, and sometimes you're looked at as the um, stiff person. Um, you know, you're vilified as the one that doesn't, you know, you don't have fun or you are too strict or whatever. But I think some things are just inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and then just um, along the same theme, you know, um, you know, the concept of black text, I mean, we, know, we all know what that is. But then what people don't appreciate, certainly in the academic spaces, is black academic texts, in the sense that I mean, you work in your academic space, you've got the same clinical outputs as your colleagues, you've got the same research outputs as your colleagues, but the burden that they don't carry, that you carry, is that now you must specifically and actively look out for, you know, for other black people, you know, in, in order to ensure that they, they are treated well. So, it's just like an, an important also to recruit them to come to the PDX. I mean, I said I, I actively try and recruit, but now again, to have to recruit black candidates and also make them female is like, it's a burden that is not 
accepted or understood by, by, by our colleagues because for them, their responsibility is to come to work and you know that and that's it. There's no other burden. So do you ever feel that extra burden of being a mentor, one? And then secondly, along your training uh, uh, journey, did you have any specific mentors that you looked up to? Mm. So the mentoring, I'm quite aggressive with uh, mentoring. Um, I even have a succession plan group. I have a hand surgery succession plan group. So every time I meet an intern, because I was an intern coordinator, that might be interested or they come to me, they say they're interested, I put them in that group and then we follow them. I follow them up to um, their, you know, they have to go to do comserve somewhere else. I check if they've done their primaries and stuff. And I've recruited quite a few females. So for me, I've always said I will have a succession plan one year, two year, five year, 10 year. So that at each year, there's somebody that I have actually taught um, orthopedic surgery or taught hand surgery specifically because hands is if you think orthopedics is quite small hand surgery is even smaller um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite aggressive with succession planning the mentors that I had from let's say um, you know uh, Saboto a little bit I asked him about you know um, 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 uh, orthopedics and what it entails and just watching him how he works he also did pelvic work um, like you do uh, you're actually his succession plan um, and then after that it was Koto, uh, Lukele um, and just you know I would ask them I, I, I wasn't afraid to like ask questions how they do things and some people might think you're being forward but you're preparing yourself because they did it at a time where it was even more difficult so for me that they passed without many issues or at some point they were the only one in their class that fascinated me so I would ask them you know how was your journey um, so um, and then for hand surgery Fleming who's still my mentor today I actually um, once a week or so, we go together. I, you know, take a, his dog for for a walk. Um, but obviously, with COVID, we haven't been able to do that. So I learned so much about, you know, not just being an orthopedic surgeon, a hand surgeon, microvascular surgeon, but just as a human being, how you carry yourself in the world and how you deal with people who are, disagree with you, um, how you must be poised. Um, so he's actually the one mentor that's been there from the beginning and still is even now um, as far as mentoring goes. And I appreciate that. That's why I pass it on so aggressively. And I make sure that those that I pass it on to, they actually also pass it on uh, forward. So the two or, or three fellows that I have trained, I literally tell them to their face, I did not um, have such input in your career for you to actually stop by, by you. You actually need to make sure that you teach the next person aggressively so. It's an I don't know, important lesson for, I think, for anyone that's listening that, you know, unfortunately, you know, our society and our continent is such that as black people, we have that added responsibility to pay it forward and it has to be active. You know, um, you cannot just let things go on passively. In fact, if you leave them to go on passively, nothing happens. So it's something that I'm glad to hear that you've, you've embraced. But now what I notice is that all the mentors you have mentioned are males. Did you at any point wish or hope that you'd had a female mentor or did it not matter to you? Um, I actually do. I, I do have a female mentor. It's just that, um, so now, because for me, mentors are people that even now you, you should have a personal relationship with. So one that I still have a personal relationship with is actually Dr. Muller. 
Um, and what's special about Dr. Muller, she's a hand surgeon trained at the same client as myself. Uh, what's special about her is that I actually did not know her. By the time I went to do my rotation as a registrar in the hand unit, she had left. But I'd met her at a conference and I'd seen her doing ward rounds um, um, and teaching and stuff. And I, and I saw how she carries herself. She's also like um, feminine. She wore her nice Jackie O dresses, short heel, looked very pretty. Uh, but still, you know, she she was a very good, she's a very good surgeon. So I went up to her and I said, look, I'm interested in hand surgery. I'm doing my rotation. Um, could I please assist you in private um, when you need an assistant? And she's like, I, I have somebody, but, you know, you know, it's a Jewish person. So in Jewish holidays or in the afternoons when they're assisting someone else, you can come. And I went there once. We gelled so much that I continued. Um, I even built it as the private public partnership. Um, so whoever I teach, registrars or even um, fellows that come through our um, hand unit, I, I would tell them on Tuesdays, this is the um, from 12 o'clock, you can go assist um, um, Dr. Muller because then you can learn uh, private um, hand surgery as well. Um, so she, she, she's the one. And the ones that I were sort of my role models in a way, and I got to know them a little bit, uh, but we're at different levels. Um, was uh, Truda, Dr. Truda. She's a shoulder surgeon. She was, I think, about two years ahead of me. Um, Dr. Susan van Jeffenta, um, quite a small, small lady, but she can do surgery, big surgery, pelvis. And um, so I, I really admired her um, uh, coming in. And I just watched them from a dis distance how they, they conducted themselves. So I learned different things from different people just by observing, just by observing. Okay, so now you are in your rotation, um, your registered rotation. At what point did you decide that, okay, look, I'm going to you know, just drop everything. I want to do hand surgery. Was it like a gradual sort of process or was it like a, just like an Einstein moment? How did you make up, uh, make up your mind? When I started my rotation uh, for hand surgery, that's when I met Professor Fleming. Um, and he would come in on a um, Monday clinic and then come in on a Friday to do his surgeries. Um, so uh, just a little bit background story. There was an, another female that came before me for that rotation. Um, and she had such a bad reputation, um, uh, you know, personality-wise and stuff. So when they heard that they're getting another female, uh, everyone was just like, oh, Lord. So I then decided, because I always do a little bit of investigation before I join a rotation. Um, so I made sure that I'm going to work so hard that all they'll see is my excellence because excellence is a deterrent for sexism and racism. So when I got there, I did hours extra. <laughs> so Prof saw that and he saw my passion. And I think just as a doctor, why I became a doctor, I could see how much I care for patients, how much I'm, I'm meticulous. So he called me aside and said, look, I think you're a hand surgeon. And I said, okay. Um, he said, look, I, I think you can really make a great um, hand surgeon. So um, if you're not sure, do your rotations. And then when you're done with your rotations and you decide on hand surgery, come back to me. We can then start our journey. Um, so then I said, okay, you know what? Since, well, every rotation I was going through, because I love orthopedics so much, I enjoyed every rotation. Even Pete, when I joined, they said, we think you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So I said to myself, just go do other rotations and then you'll see. Um, so obviously things like arthroplasty were lower down. Um, so by the time I, I was doing sort of the second last rotation, I then realized that, the best time I had was in hand surgery. So then I went back to him and he said, look, it's fine. We will do the fellowship um, in Barra first. And then after that, then you go overseas to do a fellowship. And I hadn't even thought about that. 
he saw that. He saw that in me. I hadn't even thought about it. So um, then he said, you know, we, we will do it so that you end up being a, a, a hand surgeon. So that's how okay. he started. So that was going to be my next question, actually. That's so now you went through the, the rotation and um, you wanted, so, so, so then you wanted to do a fellowship in hand surgery. And this is, of course, now what sort of the beginning of the journey that now sets you, you know, apart from you know, other specialists in the country. And um, so maybe just quickly take us through now your, your fellowships and... No, of course, not only the you know, academic part of them, but just how you found the fellowship experience. And if it's important, if it's something that you would recommend, because people always ask, like, is it necessary to go for a fellowship after my training? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, I'll answer the, first, the last question you asked, which is, is it, you know, would I recommend or is it necessary? Um, it's not necessary, but I would definitely recommend it for one or two reasons. The first one is it allows you to open up your mind. You meet other people, you do network, and you realize that the same surgery you've been doing in South Africa, in Africa, they're doing over there, and they're doing it exactly the same way you're doing it. That gives you such confidence in yourself and your capabilities um, that you might not get if you stay in a small fishbowl. Right. So for me, it really opened my mind so much. So even people I say they must go, I would say, look, you, I, I don't think you should go for learning the technique because in hand surgery, para is enough to learn hands um, pathology, the whole textbook. Right. But you're going there to actually say, oh, I'm the same as the guy from Taiwan. The, you know, we're all doing the same and we're actually using the same textbook. Right. So uh, my journey then was when I immediately when I finished, I then spoke to him. I then joined Trauma Upper Limb um, as a, a consultant, and then I gradually moved to the hand unit so that he can start training me. I spent about 18 or 19 months with him, uh, but in between that, I applied to the Climate um, Fellowship. So when I applied, then they said, oh, you've been shortlisted, come for an interview. And uh, they said, since well, you're from another country, um, you can then um, just make sure that uh, you, we can do a telephonic. And something in me just said, you know what, just take your money and go there for um, a face, face-to-face interview. Because they interview you for like a week. You come for a week, you join them in theater, um, then they give you sort of one-on-one interviews because they've got about 12 uh, um, consultants. And that was the best decision I ever made, is spending my money to go there for the interviews. Because then they get to see, you know, what kind of person you are. You spend time with them in theater. You spend time with them in, um, 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 in their clinics. And then after that, they do an interview with you, give you a few marks, put it in a sealed envelope, and you just take it to the coordinator. Then they tally and see if they want to take you or not. So then in 2012, I applied. 2013, I then went for the interview. Um, um, and then I started my fellowship in 2014. Where is this now? This is in Kleinet Institute. So it's the, um, uh, it's in uh, Kentucky, Kentucky, Louisville. So we do it with the Louisville University. Louisville is where Muhammad Ali is from. Kentucky is where Kentucky Fried Chicken is from. So did, so you, meet, did you meet Muhammad? <laughs> no, he wasn't living there by that time, but I went to his museum. <laughs> They've got a big uh, Mohammed museum. Um, yes. Okay. And then how long were you in, in the US for? 
I went there for a, so I did a year. Their fellowship is a year. So you can do an observership for about uh, two months or three months uh, just to observe. Um, or you can do sort of six months observership or you can do a one year where you join them as a, a, um, a surgeon who then operates. What's nice about um, this one, I don't know if it's still like this, it's that you don't have to write your USIMILIS, uh, your exams, American exams. Uh, but at the same time, you get your Kentucky license for the year, meaning you can operate. You can I operate wanted to ask that because most, you know, fellowships in the U.S., you know, in fact, end up being observerships. Yeah. And, and if you're because like, the, the requirements for, you know, for, for registration are quite challenging. But what I've also noticed, or certainly what happened to me, is that it depends who you go to. I mean, if the guy that you go to or, or the team that you go and join, because of course the U.S. is very money-minded. So if it's a very powerful team that brings in lots of money for the hospital, they turn a blind eye, and you can you know do what you need to do. But what I can sort of maybe emphasize for, for the people who want to do the fellowships is just the finances you know required for for doing a fellowship. In fact, I always say to the guys, nobody ever makes money from a fellowship overseas. You are just bound to lose money because it's expensive, and you know, because of course, most of the time, the expenses that you have back home remain. But then you go over there, you are on a research fellowship salary or a, uh, you know, a fellowship salary. And the living costs, you know, are, 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 quite, are quite high. And you don't often have the luxury of, you know, assisting in theater for extra money or performing locum. So just keep in mind that, you know, there has to be like a, you know, a financial hit that you will take uh, if, you, if you do a locum. But I mean, sorry, if you do a fellowship. Right, so then now moving from west to east. So now why didn't you come home? Why did you fly over the continent all the way across? So I decided before going to the US that I am going to make the most of the year by con connections and courses and all of that. So I was very fortunate to meet um, two, two people from um, Asia, from China. One was actually a fellow with me. And they just happened to have what they call a perforator um, flap course, uh, right? So she said, oh, well, my hospital in Ningbo is actually hosting it this year. Big names, big microvascular names. So if you want to go, you can go and you can actually stay with my, with, with, with my mom and my husband and my child. I said, what? So that was one. So during my, 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 my rich time, I actually took again my money and then went all the way to China for this course. And I stayed one week with them in, the, in that hospital, just learning a few things. Then when I came back, there was another fellow that came from China, from Beijing, who came as an uh, to do observership. So then he said, oh, you know, guys, if you want to come to Beijing, uh, my hospital is Tang, is the biggest um, hand um, hospital, and it's also orthopedics. You can come and visit anytime. So then I said, oh, okay, look, on my way home, can I then you know, come and visit you guys. I'll try and get maybe two, three months, but we'll see. Um, so I was only able to negotiate two months from um, 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 Bara, obviously. So I went there for, for two months. And that was, again, another best decision I ever made. Because not only did I get exposed to hand surgery and microsurgery, learning how they deal with like your microvascular um, work, your flaps, free flaps, and replants, how they do it, with such um, limited resource, like in our situation, especially the um, um, WCA or the workmen's com um, injuries. So I learned a lot. And then I was able at the same time to visit all the other subspecialty of orthopedics. 
So I would go and visit the guys that do arthroscopies, you know, uh, wrist, knee, um, shoulder. I would go and um, visit the trauma guys because they actually have a, a trauma orthopedics as a separate subspeciality. Um, and then the tumor guys I would go and visit. And some of them we visit because the orthopedic guys will call the, the hand surgeon and says, oh, we need a flap over this um, open tibia. Then I would go along with uh, Dr. Shui, who I was visiting, then we would go and actually do a flap together. Or they'll say, oh, there's a tumor in the forearm, please come and do a free fibula um, 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 a flap. So then I would go with him, then we'd actually do it together. And what was nice was they would actually also let you operate because they're so busy, just like, you know, South African hospitals. They'll like dig in, you know, we know you can do some stuff. So, you know, we've got theaters available, six theaters, trauma theaters. You know, pick one, you can work with one of our fellows and then um, you can operate. So you just dig in. That was wonderful. Okay. So then after that, you came home and you became a consultant in Barra. Now, just two questions there. You know, because when you say you're a microvascular surgeon and you're a hand surgeon, people don't really understand how unique that skill is to find in one person, certainly from an orthopedic surgeon. So maybe just to give us a few examples of what that entails. And then my next question now from that is going to be, uh, I mean, along the way uh, in your time in Barra, I heard from the grapevine that you won some awards. So maybe tell us about that also. <laughs> okay. So being an orthopedic hand and microsurgeon means that you are an orthopedic surgeon. So you can, and we all know that in orthopedics, we say it's a soft tissue injury that happens to have a fracture, right? But unfortunately, stereotype says, oh, you know, where's the fracture, right? So with the hand surgery, orthopedic hand surgery, you can fix the bone yourself, uh, the fracture yourself. You can fix the tendons, muscles, the nerves yourself. You can fix the arteries and the veins yourself, connect them yourself. Um, and then you can also do soft tissue cover from skin grafts, um, you know, rotational flaps, or even free flaps. So what I then added to our hand unit is that I added free flaps that, had, that hadn't been done before. Um, they were doing sort of rotational groin flap and all of that just to cover the upper limb. So then I do um, also free flaps. So some cases where you would struggle to find either a vascular surgeon to come in or trauma surgeon, and then a plastic surgeon and all of that. For me, I just said, I want to solve a problem. If it's possible for me to do all of it with the team that's sort of orthopedic based, maybe with the a plastic surgeon that's rotating with us, that would be excellent. Um, so that's what I love about it. And um, uh, you know, everybody that thinks about, or most people that think about hand surgery, they think we just do pedicures, couple tunnel, uh, trigger finger release. Um, and people are easy to, you know, they, they, they easily say to you, oh, hand surgeon, okay. Until then I show pictures of what I do. So step neck, you know, the vascular guys, trauma guys can go into the vessel. Then I do the, the nerves, either two weeks later or with them. Children that are born with deformities, um, you know, radial clap hand, you know, stuff that would, you know, be done maybe by a plastic surgeon, um, sort of in private. We, we do that as a hand surgeon. And I realized going international that a hand unit encompasses all of that. That's why most hand units internationally are run by orthopedics but they actually have the plastic surgeon that works with them because some of them just don't want to deal with the soft tissue cover, but they can do the you know, tendons and all of that, right? So for me, it was an absolute eye-opener. And our, um, even today, I'm in, I'm in awe of the kind of surgeries 
I'm able to do because I did that fellowship or I worked with um, Professor Fleming. And even the children of fire that come with um, contractors, not only hand contractors, you know, you taught me even how to do, you know, armpit kind of thing. So where you can release contractors, uh, tumors of the hand, of the forearm. Um, so for me, it's like um, every day is a new thing that I'm learning. Very exciting in surgery. And the award, let's hear about the awards now. Oh, Kanisa Award. It's meant, um, it's meant to be a happy celebratory event. So let's hear the nice parts also. <laughs> Kanisa Award came about, um, I think somebody from another department was coming um, to, do, to, to, to watch our consolidated Eminems. And they realized, oh, there's this thing called the minor procedure room that, you know, um, Dr. Sateha has started and we're showing them the statistics. Um, so they were like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So they then went um, to... Uh, quality control and said, oh, we know that there is, you know, uh, awards every year um, for healthcare workers. So we've heard about um, Dr. Sateha. She's actually done this project that's in casualty. So will you please look into uh, putting her into the um, category of um, innovative, um, like something that you've created to solve a problem, right? So I was like, okay, fine, you can. It, I guess it's, it's cool. But I knew that there is this new machine that they've been using in Guyane. Uh, um, to um, um, shrink fibroids and stuff. And, and that's a beautiful thing. They start. So I was like, listen, they actually deserve it. So the minor procedure room, um, I started it because the hand unit has got two theaters that run um, every day. And we cannot afford to do all the trauma because you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, every call about 30 to 40% is hand surgery. If you add distal radius fractures as part of hand surgery, that means we can actually do 60% of orthopedics admissions is hand admissions. So I realized when I was overseas that, oh, we had this minor procedure room in casualty where we can do um, theater, I mean, surgeries for um, fingertip injuries. Um, or things you can do a wrist block or a digital block for. So then we asked for a space in casualty, um, asked for a theater bed, stocked it up, and then um, monitors, um, and I created a minor procedure room. So then um, the, uh, the um, comserves uh, that are working with us or the medical officers or the um, uh, registrars, then they can actually perform these um, surgeries in there. So we calculated, we saved about 18 million in about two years, if you look at a quaternary or a tertiary hospital, what it costs for a patient to be admitted for two to three days, which for a fell, for a, for a, for an infection of the finger in Bara, you can't turn away patients, and some of them don't want to go to the um, local clinic for small stuff. So they they would actually come to Bara, and you, they get admitted, they get pushed pushed on the septic list, they get admitted for three days, and that's a lot of money. So when you calculate it, we presented at the at the hand congress, there's about 18, 18 million um, saved. Actually. So that was one project. But then someone said, look, it sounds like this girl is actually doing a lot of stuff. So then they looked at other projects that I'm doing. Um, and then they realized that maybe I should also apply for the, um, the personal one as a, as, as a doctor. So I actually won that one as the best performing uh, doctor um, for 2018-2019. Um, and when I looked at sort of the motivation letter, the stuff that I had done since coming back, I was also like, wow, I've actually done a lot. Because when I came back, I was just like, what can I improve? What can I improve from registrar teaching, interns, you know, um, how can I improve service delivery? How can, so I, I added a lot of things um, so that I can improve all of that. So that's why I was. Yeah. Hmm? No, look, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, same thing. I think the lesson there, you know, for everyone that's, you know, that's listening is that, yes, of course, you know, you came back with all these qualifications, but 
the important part, you know, in, in life and certainly in the spaces that we occupy is that, you know, you must never stop moving. You know, if you, the day you think, okay, now I've done it all is the day you stop, um, you stop getting better. So honestly, it's been a great journey um, along the way. And, and I think the, the awards are very well deserved. So now looking back at your time from when you chose to specialize up to the award-winning and celebrated surgeon that you are today. If you were to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Or to paraphrase the question, what advice would you give to someone who is starting off and wants to embark on a similar journey to you? One, you must make a decision. It's all in the mind, right? So once you make the decision that this is the journey you want, two, you find people that are on a similar journey, um, it doesn't have to be exact journey. It can be people that have done fellowships. Uh, remember, I spoke to you because you had done your fellowship before mine to ask about the experience and, you know, how was the experience. So it doesn't have to be exactly, because um, um, sometimes you don't have someone ahead of you that's done it that looks like you. Um, and after that, then you just have to do what needs to be done. You have to start ticking things that are required. Um, and then make sure along the way you have support, support from your um, family, which I have a lot, um, and support, you know, from your friends. So keep a, a circle of friends that understand, uh, because for me, family and friends, remember, as a registrar and a fellow, you are away from home a lot. You can't even attend some funerals. So my sisters had to represent me as, you know, the, the, the uh, part of the family. Um, so if you have a, you, you must have a lot of support and just keep asking questions, just ask questions. What the one thing that I thought I should have done was maybe take a break because immediately when I finished ComServ, I went into MO time and then I went into reg time. Then when I finished reg time, I went into the fellowship. And then after the fellowship, I even worked harder to try and implement all the stuff. So I was really, really, by the end of uh, 2019, I realized that, oh, I'm, I think I'm a bit exhausted. So with COVID coming, I realized now when I slowed down a lot that I actually needed a break. So I think just be a little bit kinder to yourself when it comes to the timeline. Don't go like, I need to do this, this, this. You actually sometimes just say, I can do MO time for two years. It's okay. And then just watch, prepare other things, my life and all of that, and then go into it. So I, I think I should have taken a bit of time. Yeah. And, and then the other thing, of course, that, you know, I, I mean, I've had this conversation a little bit with you previously is, in fact, for the generation that, you know, we are living in the social media age and everyone wants to have a hashtag. So, you know, the statement that you left with me was that, you know, you need to be the, the consultant that you wish you had, you know. So I think maybe that can be the takeaway message for the registrars and the consultants in the chat tonight that that's a takeaway hashtag. Hashtag be the consultant that you wish you had. And uh, that yeah. obviously speaks to, to support and awareness of the broader issues that face people. Because, of course, when you come to work, you know, people just see a body. They forget like all the burden and baggage that you're carrying and you need to be able to, to appreciate that, you know, people are people. They are not just registered number three, four, two, you know. So listen, Cynthia, look, we could talk all night and there's so much more that I would love to ask you. <laughs> so I think... Yeah, so I think maybe what you can do, we're going to take some questions from, from the floor, if I can call it that. And I see um, Tango had a question here about the requirements for, for the primary. 
look, in terms of regulations, Tabo, there's no specific requirement. So the, the only requirement is that you need to have completed your medical training. And the other requirement, of course, is that you must study. But there's no time, you know, uh, there's no saying that you need to do three months of this or six months of that. So, uh, so primary, uh, just anatomy and physiology. And the beauty is, that, I mean, there's no specific training for, for, pri for primaries. It is going to be your, your, your revision for medical school. I mean, the, the only primaries that are slightly different, of course, is like with, with the other specialties like neuro. But for, for orthopedics, the primary is anatomy and physiology. So you, you just need to dust off your textbooks and, um, and, and, and go through that. And, and like I said, the internship is two I mean, for me, for any interns listening, internship is two years. I'm a firm believer that you must take the first year off. Just like, don't read anything, only read your clinical rotations. And like Cynthia alluded to, you know, you need to have a break at some point, you know. And uh, it's something that maybe what you did, um, the from, from China, you should consider putting that as part of your, you know, in your program, you know, if these sessions are going to continue to sort of have someone, non-medical, you know, that doesn't have to be medical, but to just come and talk about, you know, uh, I don't know what they call it nowadays, mindfulness. And because of, for, for me, that's very important. Because we forget yeah, to look at no, ourselves. No. Yeah, we, we really forget. And yeah. you know, like I said, you know, specialization times are stressful times. You know, being a doctor has a stressful time. So it's important that Cynthia you know, emphasize the importance of taking a break. But of course, taking a break doesn't mean that you must work hard for five years and then take a break. You know, at every opportunity in your week or in your month, you must have dedicated times that you that are just me times, if you can call it that. You know. It seems like we've only got two questions from the floor. We've addressed most of uh, the questions throughout um, the, the duration of the talk. From all the way from Nigeria, Dr. Olukemi Lawani. Good evening. Are you there? Good evening. Yes, I am here. Can you hear me? Loud. We can hear you, Doctor. Welcome. Wait. Um, I was really excited to find this through a friend of mine, and I have no idea how he got to hear about the seminar anyway. Um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon from Nigeria and have been tasked with setting up a countrywide teaching schedule to sort of cover the whole of orthopedics in like rolling rotor sort of thing. And I've been wondering and looking for people to teach on hand surgery. And I was really excited to find that... Dr. Sathega is an orthopedic hand surgeon because a lot of the hand sort of gets zoned to plastic surgery. Um, so that was what I was hoping to ask her about teaching. My second similar question is, does she have any facilities or opportunities for training surgeons from other parts in Africa? I am I'm, I'm doing fellowship training in pediatric orthopedics and very keen to learn a lot more than I know right now on the pediatric upper extremity because, like I said, a lot of hand tends to get done by plastic surgery and the pediatric congenital upper limb problems sort of fall in between that. And I was just wondering if that would be something that I could learn from her. So those are my questions. Okay, thank you very much for tuning in. 
I'd actually invited a friend of mine, Dr. Taufik from Nigeria. So probably through that channel. Yes, I got that from him. Yes. yes, he was actually a trauma fellow with us in Barra a few years ago, and we just kept in touch um, just to learn from each other. So um, one um, being the teaching, um, I love teaching, especially now that we've got you know this platform COVID has awarded us. Um, I, I absolutely yes. do not mind participating in um, any of the teachings that you guys have um, we can do them um, this way uh, when it comes to the fellowship the Chris Honey Baragwana hand unit um, if you google um, hand fellowships um, international um, uh, fellowships it's actually there since uh, Professor Fleming um, um, was is internationally trained he actually has um, had a, a fellowship so we do have fellows coming even all the way from Kenya. We had a Kenyan guy about two years ago. Um, and then we mm. have local guys that we do train. So if any of your um, registrars are interested, um, they can then apply to um, the um, hand unit to actually do a, a fellowship there, spend some time there. Um, and then, you know, for me, um, I've just sort of started my private practice, but it is something that definitely along uh, the way, I will have my own sort of private public um, fellowship partnership um, and then um, we, we'll, we'll do it that way yeah but the teaching for now definitely you'll get um, my details even Taufi can give you uh, my number it's fine okay and then just to add on to that Dr. Lawani um, yes, like please. I said um, earlier on so I'm based at the, at the University of Cape Town and um, we have regular teaching and all the sub specialties of orthopedics are represented Okay. And, and our teaching is on a Tuesday evening. So okay. I'm going to share the details via, via Watile um, for that. Um, it's, it's Zoom teaching and everyone is, is um, welcome to join. So you can definitely share that um, a fine wide well, um, with your yes. colleagues in Nigeria. Thank you. That's, that's lovely. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lawani. I'm good. Um, I'm Dr. Ngana. I'm a comserve um, at Pulusong in Zagani, east of Johannesburg. Um, I've been very interested in orthopedics since university. I studied at WIT. Um, I did my orthopedic rotation at um, um, Simja. But I realized that the orthopedic department is so um, saturated with males. And when a female comes through saying she's interested it's a bit of a shock to everyone. And I think in my lifespan, seeing orthopedic surgeons, I only know two females that I know of, it's Dr. Setecha and Dr. Tivani Naidu in Peter Maritzburg. And my question is, how do you get females comfortable in a male's dominated space? And how is the orthopedic department as male dominated as it is support females who are trying to break into a space like this one? Thank you. I'm going to answer that first in Bali. I thank you for your question. Okay. If the guys in Joburg are giving you problems, please come to Cape Town. We have a wonderful <laughs> department. We have, 
our city is much nicer than much nicer than Johannesburg, and we won't look at you funny. We're gonna open or welcome you with open arms. Uh, look, I mean, Bali, the, the reality is that you know orthopedics is still very much male dominated, and um, you know it's. I mean, obviously, it's easy for us to say that, uh, you know, it's because females don't come to orthopedics. But I always say we have a responsibility to ensure that they don't come to orthopedics because, you know, you know, we are of the way we look at them or the way we treat them. And, you know, an example I made a couple of years ago in the, one of the meetings was that if you look at the medical school class in final year, the majority are females. Yes. If you look at the top 20% of the class in terms of marks, 80% are females. Mm. So now, if the majority of orthopedic surgeons are males, it means that we're only picking from the stupid bunch because the, <laughs> clever, because the clever ones go and do something else. So as a specialty, we are not going to progress. You know, we are not in, in, you know, um, accepting and inviting the most intelligent amongst our species. So we need to do better. And yes, of course, I mean, it's, you know, so from us, I think as males, we have a responsibility to make sure that the culture we create is welcoming and is conducive to anybody that wants to come to orthopedics. And um, it's, look, again, one of those things where, unfortunately, if you leave things as they are, they won't change. It can never be a passive process. We need to actively recruit. We need to actively intervene. And actually, I want you to ask Cynthia, because... You were an undergrad in Cape Town. Why did you pick Joburg and not come back to Cape Town? Because they said that I cannot fall pregnant during my red time. They don't have such time for women. They me in Cape Town. <laughs> 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 so they, they are on a strict rotation schedule. Mm. Yeah. Just chime in, please. If I can just okay. chime in before you answer. Okay. Uh, Dr. Nana. Yes. I think through avenues like this, uh, Ujama Author as a company, that's what we are trying to, to foster, um, to bring down the walls a little bit and make the spaces a bit more safer. Mm-hmm. And we've got female rep, reps, sales reps in, in the company, and they do hold us to account, hold us accountable as, as men. As Prof. Makungo said, it is. Um, our responsibility as well to make, as men, to make these spaces a lot more um, safer so that they can be more attractive to, as you said, the top 20% of med school graduates, a.k.a. all of the women. <laughs> so, but also, just yeah. to, if, if you look at the comment line, I see Jenny has, uh, Jenny is, um, she was one of our registrars, but now she's a consultant in, um, within our department. She fell pregnant during her rotation. She delivered okay. and she came Maybe back. She passed and she got her medal. So Mbali, it can be done. What I'll do is we can be we can be a little bit more flexible with our time. I know we said we're going to end at eight thirty, but I see we're getting more comments now from the women. We've got Dr. Yenzingema and uh, Dr. Jenny Mako. If they would like, I'd also. Give them an opportunity, but please suggest you can answer. That's fine. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. So just to uh, answer Mbalini, um, I can put you in my WhatsApp group, my dear, if you're serious mm-hmm. about joining. And I agree <laughs> with um, <laughs> Sutombo that in actual fact, um, like Aditya said, everybody should be a feminist. So it starts with the males. 
Um, and part of the reason why I had to exit a bit is because I realized as the only female, the black female in orthopedics and para, it, you know, so, some things that do happen, you know, led, led to me saying, you know what, I actually cannot fight this battle by myself. I need a bit of an exit, think about things and then see how I can help from wherever I am, right? So Sutombo, it is your, your guys' responsibility at the uh, table of decision-making. You cannot talk about transformation just because, you know, black females entered or females entered. Transformation is how many of those black females are actually sitting at the same table as you or having higher positions, right? So for me, you know, it's not a battle for one person, uh, but I think with, with time and all the females that are up and coming, it, it should get um, a lot easier. And uh, with myself being part of that channel, I don't have to physically be there all the time, but obviously having um, 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 conversations like this or platforms like this, we can, we, can, we, we can try and make it easier, a little bit easier for the female to exist in that kind of environment. Yeah, look, also just to add, you know, I mean, uh, on, on to the point is that I've always been envious, actually, of vets, because obviously they must have had this discussion long before we did, because they've got far more females in their rotation than, than we do, and historically they've always had, but watch this space. Um, I see Jenny is on the line, and so Mbali, when Wachida puts up our email addresses, don't email Cynthia, please email us. Uh, you can email Jenny as well. Mbali, I have a track record, my dear, <laughs> with, my, with my succession plan, and I'm aggressive. I will continue your primaries. I will support you. Listen, Cape Town is too far. There you go, Mbali. You've got two, two, two opportunities for a red post. Okay, actually, we're going to. No, 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 I think we must have a separate presentation from Bali. I'm going to pitch Cape Town. You can pitch Alpine, and then we'll take it from there. There uh, you go, Bali. Thank you, Dr. Nana. Um, we've got Nongaeba Kurante. Please uh, welcome the floor, yours. Evening, Nongaeba. Hi, hi everyone. Um, my name is Nongaeba Kurante. I am a radiologist at uh, Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital. Um, I mean, I'm not in the orthopedic space whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted to, mine is a comment more than a question. You know, my first encounter with Cynthia was when I was a senior reg in the vet circuit and she had just come back because we have a rotation, an orthopedic rotation for radiologists. And then, um, I mean, she had just come back and I was like, who is this trailblazer? type woman who's sitting there with the profs in the front type of thing, you know? And, um, and I've had an encounter with her as well, even after, what, after that, where, you know, she sent a patient in private. I mean, now as a specialist. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. We can still hear you. So I had an encounter as well with her in private and she sent a patient for, you know, ultrasound and, you know, quite daunting which, oh you know these uh, very difficult um musculoskeletal ultrasounds and stuff and you know she comes in with the patient we do the ultrasound together we, we teach she, she talks this and that we talk and discuss the case to to the t you know so um and we had conversations after that you know we've, we've been having these conversations and I, i'm just you know coming here as a, a from a different sphere to just 
say that you know we need these encounters we need these um type of webinars whereby you know our responsibility as specialists you know you know black specialists especially to assist the young you know to 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 tell them our journey and uh, Cynthia thank you for telling us your journey it's actually you know phenomenal that you've been you've gone through what you've gone through and you're sharing it with the young people so that everybody really understands and knows what it takes and that it actually is absolutely totally possible and that we should not be apologetic about where we want to see ourselves and i love the fact that you've got this plan of two years four years 10 years so um and i'm also looking forward to private public partnership and even interdepartmental mm -hmm. partnerships you mm -hmm. know with radiology if we have to write up something you know between the different departments this is the time and um i'm very glad that um i was part of this webinar um, I watched this webinar and my daughter is sitting here and, you know, she's apparently uh, Cynthia's patient and, you know, she's like, you know, it's, it's so, it's so lovely to hear a little girl look up to a lady that is so great and a doctor and she, she sees it and, you know, we need to teach them as they are growing up. You know, so I really, really, um, Prof, thank you for the for the webinar. Really great. And I look forward to more of these where we share and, um, you know, get to understand ourselves as a, as a people that we are actually totally excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And let's move on swiftly. Are you answering? Are you commenting, Cynthia? Yeah, and I just wanted to comment that, you know, okay. thanks to Mneba. And for me, it's very important um, to become the person you wanted to you wanted to have previously. We know as orthopedic surgeons, you always fight with anesthesiologists and radiologists. So I decided to take a different route. Let's collaborate. So if I have a patient and they, you know, you know she's a bit uncomfortable with an ultrasound, I can sit there and throw my toys and no, 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 this is your job. Or I can say, look, it's not something that you guys do a lot of. I'm also learning. In actual fact, I'm learning while they're learning. So then when we do it together, we're both learning. And that way we actually grow together and become better doctors for the patient. And patients love that because I also tell them, I'm also learning. I'm going to go down with you and then we'll do this together. So this whole ego, this one, the other, you know, us and them, you know, I, I don't ascribe to that. Thank you. Next, we have Ukoptai and Zingema. Dr. Ngema, welcome. Hi, good evening, everybody. And thank you for this, um, yeah, this seminar. It's really eye-opening and encouraging and inspiring. But I just wanted to tell Bali that she should come to VITS. Um, I'm a, a female uh, orthopedic in training. And I, when I was an intern, I was an intern at uh, Barra. And when I was there, there were so many females. So I just thought, okay, listen, when I start my registrarship, there's not going to be a of surprise or um, this. It, it's abnormal to have a female because they were they were. I just felt that there were so many, um, and that's how it's been. I haven't felt like I'm not part of the team. I think I I. And I didn't even do my MO time in the VIT circuits. I just arrived as a reg from KZN. And it's just, it's been amazing. Obviously, um, you just have to show them that you, 
probably can cut better and faster than them. But um, but otherwise, it hasn't been. I, I don't think it's been difficult um, at all. So come to us, basically. Listen, Yenzi. Thank you. Thank you. I said to you just previously that I said that the vets are a little bit ahead of us um, when it comes to female, when it comes to uh, attracting females. But I'm, I'm a marathon runner. So I know that it's not how you start that much as it's how you finish. <laughs> so watch this. In fact, okay. I don't even we'll, say it we'll myself. See I see Jenny is online. I don't, I don't know, Jenny, I see yes. that. Uh, let's, let's, let's move over to Cape Town, yeah. So I'll let Jenny speak oh no, for, for Cape Town. We've heard from, we've heard from that. Let's hear from Cape Town. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Ngema. All right. Jenny, bye. Hi, hi, hi Jenny. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, Satsumba. Thanks for, thanks for having me and thanks for this awesome discussion. Yeah, at, at UCT, I've never felt that it was an issue to be a female or um, that I wasn't part of the team. I was always treated the same as any of the other guys and I didn't feel any kind of prejudice or any... Um, I don't even know how to phrase it. Any kind of... Um, need to prove myself I was just accepted and I think that's a good reflection of the inclusiveness of the department there um, and as I said I, I was even pregnant and delivered and took maternity leave during the registrar time um, and I wrote exams with having a one one and a half year old little girl and the department really supported me and it all went all went very well. When she came for her annual, you know, um, uh, um, appraisal interviews, you know, she brought the baby with to the interview and it shocked <laughs> everyone. And Prof hasn't recovered wow. yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Janine, I'm so glad. Because for me, in 2004, that was not the story. So I'm glad, you know, the marathon runners are actually catching up. Importantly, I mean, Jenny is now the facilitator of, as many of you know, when you come to the Cape Town um, circuit, you come into the, into the MO rotation first before you get into the register program. So Jenny is now the facilitator of that process. So at some point, Mbali, that's a name that you must familiarize yourself with. And everyone else, of course, wants to come to Cape Town. At some point, you're going to have to write to Jenny. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny, for that. Um, we do have a question from Susan. Susan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Welcome. So for those of you who don't know, Susan is Ujama Otto's first lady. So... By first lady, we mean she is the boss, actually. So she tells us all what to do. <laughs> I see you have a question for Dr. Satecha, uh, Susan. Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me. Welcome, everyone. I'm Susan. I'm Ujama's only female rep at this point. And we will do and better. I'm, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we will we'll be for more. And I am very glad to be a part of conversations like this in this industry because I'm coming from a nursing background. I was a scrub sister, so I know it's a very male-dominated industry. And I'm glad that finally we can have these conversations about this. Thank you, Dr. Satekha. Thank you again for, for being a part of this. 
And my question was, what is your is what is your advice to a female black rep in the industry? Excellent, Susan, which already yeah. you're doing so well. Yeah. Uh, because you have a team that actually says you must be excellent at what you do. So for me, you're already doing it. The fact that uh, by the time you come, you introduce yourself, um, you are well-dressed. You guys have beautiful African print scrubs, which I love. Um, you are friendly to everyone in theatre. You greet everyone in theatre as you enter. Um, and you're very helpful with the, um, uh, with the nurses. So I, you know, I haven't picked up anything that I would say for you, you just need to maybe change. I mean, I, I know I'm always giving you guys feedback, Watile knows, um, and Papama, I give you guys feedback. But when it comes to how you carry yourself and do your stuff, I think you guys have that down because as a rep, you, you know the set very well, you're very helpful. Um, and I think from the beginning, that's what you guys decided as a team, that the service um, delivery that you guys give must just be a notch higher. Uh, where even personality-wise as a person, you come through, you, you come open as a person. Um, so you don't get uh, too nervous when, you know, doctors start speaking and whatnot. You are respectful and yet you're like, but I also hold my space very well, uh, which is good. You already do that. And I think that comes from the experience of a scrub nurse because as a scrub nurse, you can take a lot of abuse from surgeons. <laughs> Actually, uh, Susan, look, if I can add on to that, I think, yes, of course, I mean, the rules about excellence are, are universal, but just to echo what Cynthia has said is that personally, I know what I look for in a rep. One, you need to be knowledgeable. You need to be, you know, you need to know your stuff. But secondly, you know, I want you to be present, visible, but not in your face. You know, I, I don't, you know, there are reps who are just, uh, you know, offensive as a person, you know, like you may have the most wonderful set, but if the person that brings a set to you is not a great person to work with. Forget what he's selling, you know, it will never sell. And when it comes to the, the honest truth is that most implants are equal in terms of quality. So what it boils down to is the presentation of the implant and the relationships you have with the pe people that bring the implant. So if you are friendly and, um, but importantly, you need to be confident and, um, and like I said, I, I, I can't emphasize enough that you need to be knowledgeable about, about what you do. Because it, the, the truth is, you are the face of your company. Yeah. Mm. Yes. And she's a, an excellent face at that. Yep. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, Susan. Listen, when I said face, I, I meant presentation. I don't want to be accused now of being anti... No, no, no. We, we I don't take like you the, too literally. The presentation of the company is like, the, you know, you are the visible person behind the company or in front of the company. We didn't take you too literally. <laughs> I'm going to expedite. I'm going to take three more. There's Dr. Duma, Naba, uh, and I think we've got a Dr. Carl Labi, if I'm not mistaken, but Dr. Duma. Okay, you go first. Welcome, Dr. Duma. Hi, hi, hi. How's everyone? How are you? We are well, hey, thanks. How are you? <laughs> no, thanks for the, for the lovely um, um, evening. Uh, I think I've learned a lot, actually, about myself. Uh, I'll just be brief. Um, hi, Prof. Hi, Prof. Sorry. Uh, Jemba, hi. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I think I posted the question on the on the on the chat there. I am not very articulate. I'm a bit uh, tired. Uh, essentially, I just wanted to just say, look, I, I I think as as, as men, particularly as speaking myself, I can never really understand, you know, all the challenges that, I, that women face in the in the work work workspace. You know, so I think you know, similar to the to the race issue, it's so complicated. You know, so I think what are some of the strategies that one could employ? You know try and improve, you know, our understanding as male figures in the, in the workspace. Um, and then secondly as well, you know, one of the other questions I've, I've, I've been faced with, you know, at, at, um, either courses or at our department, you know, is uh, young medical officers or interns ask, you know, um, how, how is family life, you know, as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon? And, you know, how can they time having or starting a family along with, you know, uh, becoming a specialist, you know, so it's, both these are questions I actually I don't have an adequate answer for because you know I have no no experience with being pregnant you know so <laughs> I don't know if you can tackle that please yeah for example I mean uh, I can only speak of my personal philosophy and, and I'm gonna try and be brief so what can we as men do so firstly you know we need to acknowledge that the spaces that we occupy are very male dominated and 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 the climate is very it's not only pro-male but it's very anti-female you know so we need to appreciate that and so the responsibility is on us to change that we can't expect the women to come in and change it themselves no it, it will never happen so what we need is to develop emotional intelligence you know like that's the first thing um, that we need and secondly is the mental awareness and the you know, and accepting the responsibility that, you know, we need to be more empathetic, you know. So when someone says, I don't like what you're saying for reason one, two, three, it's not enough to accept that they don't like it, but you need to understand why. And also, if someone says, look, it's painful for me, don't just say, okay, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause you pain. You need to go deeper and find out why it's paining them so much. Because what's lacking most of the time is the understanding or, or, or rather the, the deeper appreciation of the issues. And, and, and like I said, you know, it, it's too much of a burden to, to place onto women to make us understand that, you know, because they're fighting their own battles and most of those battles are because of us anyway. So I think our responsibility <laughs> is to ensure that, you know, we create a conducive environment, but importantly, we can empathize and, um, and we are emotionally mature enough to, to accept and appreciate and understand. Well, one thing I, I can add to what Sitomba said, I agree exactly with what he said. Ne? And I, I, I want you guys to take it even one step further, right? Before, you know, emotionally. If you guys can just um, challenge how you're socialized, how we're all socialized, actually. If you can challenge all those stereotypes about where women belongs and all of that. And sometimes people think, oh, but I'm liberal. I'm here with you. I'm working with you. Until a situation occurs, and then you can actually start seeing them. The same as uh, racial issues. You know, someone can say, but I've got black friends and blah, blah, blah. Until there's a certain thing that happens, and you see their true colors. Because everybody reverts back to their factory uh, default. So how you are socialized, we need to always challenge ourselves and say, 
was it right how my father did this or my uncle did this mm-hmm. okay didn't feel right when he did that with the way he did my mom so therefore i need to challenge myself and say that's not how you should treat a woman because i'm telling you right now if somebody hits their wife at home there's no way they can work with someone like me no way they can say yes i'll be on working with her but to accept me no the same way you cannot change someone who is in the um, kkk to say no but you must accept a black person as a human being you know uh, because you're you're dehumanized it's very difficult to do that until the human being themselves challenges you 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 peel all those layers and say the stereotypes i actually need to challenge myself you know it, it's okay for i mean she's actually a human being before she's got breasts and other things we actually complement each other it does not mean i'm better than her if you can start challenging that thinking i'm telling you that can unlock a lot of things because a lot of people who are in uh, positions of power they have th- that socialization that yeah fine just give them you know let them come in but you know don't don't, don't let them sit at the table don't the same thing that happened to you as black men it's actually happening to us as 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 black women and i think you seem to have forgotten that the the battles you guys fought we were there helping you to fight to get to the white table now we are saying but why are you closing the door why are you closing the door while you're sitting down you know so challenge yourself challenge if you can just do that that would help a lot of problems a lot i hate to cut us short but i see it's nine o'clock in just of time i don't want us to let's have a hard stop um dr labi dr duma thank you for that um to everyone um again to our panelists uh, Dombo and Cynthia or Prof Matungo and the hand surgeon thank you for making time and uh, again let's congratulate you Dr Fatehan on all of your inspiring achievements and uh, we know this is only the beginning for you thank you for making time to you know to open yourself up so that we can get to know you a little bit better and inspire 